karma means action karma the sanskrit word so meaning is action uh, so that uh, i think uh, whether people use the word of karma or not actually everybody knows you see the uh, things entirely depend on your effort your action so then in that sense your effort karma more or less the same meaning but that that uh, that indicates uh, whatever you wish or you want either overcome suffering or achieve some good thing only through prayer not sufficient you must work so you must create karma positive karma positive karma means positive action okay positive action indeed for those who didn't recognize that voice that was his holiness the dalai lama tenzin gyatso the 14th dalai lama of tibet speaking about karma positive action karma and this is mark winwood bringing you the elegant mind here on valley 104.9 community fm radio serving Duval, Carnation, and the Redmond Ridge in Washington State's lower Snoqualmie Valley. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. We're going to be talking today about karma, a very misunderstood term, karma. Some people see karma as, uh, as punishment. Some people see karma as a character on a TV sitcom, we're going to talk about karma before we do. I'd like to just give you a little little heads up, a little, little background on the teacher, the person who introduced the ideas and notions of karma to us. That was Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Siddhartha was a prince. He was a prince from a family or a clan called the Sakyas, was born and grew up near what is now the India-Nepal border in the 5th or 6th century before the Common Era. As a child, he had a kind heart. He excelled in the arts and studies of his time, and he lived a very sheltered life in the palace during his early years. But as a young man, he ventured out beyond the palace walls. Doing so in town, he saw, as the story goes, for the very first time, a sick person, an old person, and a corpse, prompting him to reflect on the suffering nature of life. Seeing a wandering mendicant, a holy person, he considered the possibility of liberation from suffering, from samsara, cyclic existence, ordinary life. And so at the age of 29, he left the palace and he adopted the lifestyle of a wandering mendicant, a spiritual seeker. He studied with the great teachers of his time and mastered their meditation techniques, but he discovered that whatever he was doing, whatever he was learning, as pleasant, as interesting as it might be, it did not lead to liberation. So for six years, he pursued severe ascetic practices in the forest, but realizing that torturing the body does not tame the mind, he adopted the middle way of keeping his body healthy for the sake of spiritual practice without indulging in unnecessary comforts. 
Sitting under the Bodhi tree in what is present-day Bodh Gaya, India, he vowed not to arise until he had attained full awakening. On the full moon of the fourth lunar month, he finished the process of cleansing his mind of all obscurations and developing all good qualities, and he became a fully awakened Buddha. Thirty-five years old at the time, he spent the next 45 years of his life teaching what he had discovered through his own experience to whoever came to hear. The Buddha taught men and women from all social classes, races, and ages. This made him quite a, quite a rebel. As his followers attained realizations and became skilled teachers, they shared with others what they had learned, spreading the teachings throughout ancient India. Siddhartha had insights into the workings of the mind that were previously unknown. He taught that our outlook impacts our experience and that our experiences of suffering and happiness are not thrust upon us by others, but are a product of the ignorance and afflictions in our own minds. Liberation and full awakening are likewise states of mind, not the external environment. Of all his teachings, wisdom and compassion, and patience, equanimity, rebirth, and so on, of all his teachings, Siddhartha said that the most important, fundamental, accessible, and impossibly difficult to fully comprehend were his teachings on karma, the natural laws of cause and effect, or action. So it's on karma that we're going to spend our time this week on the elegant mind. What is karma? How does it work? How does it not work? What is it? What is it not? We're going to also share in music as we do each week, the music of Bobby Vega, San Francisco Bay Area musician, world-class, world-renowned musician, composer. He plays the electric bass and has very kindly offered his music to, uh, to share on these broadcasts with our listeners. So that's where we're going. Karma, music, and then more karma. We'll have the music about halfway through, take a little break. And once again, this is Mark Winwood on The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9, Community FM Radio, serving Duval, Carnation, and the Redmond Ridge in Western Washington's Lower Snoqualmie Valley, for those of you not familiar, we're located less than an hour to the northeast of Seattle amidst the trees and flowing waters of the beautiful Cascade Mountain Range foothills. So it is difficult to know exactly what it is that the historical Buddha, Siddhartha, really taught and what is just merely attributed to him the teachings in the Pali Canon, the wisdom teachings, the Sanskrit teachings, the Nalanda tradition teachings. And sometimes it becomes difficult to accept or even sometimes perhaps take seriously for some people the ideas of rebirth and reincarnation and, you know, past lives and and so on. It's not for this program's discussion. But what isn't silly, what is absolutely not silly, is the acknowledgement of consequence and the realization that what I choose to do matters. 
I don't have to look at past or future lives to observe the consequences of my actions or to feel their effects. It's really easily discoverable among those, uh, those of my family and my friends, those who've lived in my, or continue to live in my, in my very household. This is where I can witness the immediate effects of my choices and how my behavior transmits and transfers to those around me. I don't have to wait for any payoff. If I bother to notice, if I care enough to notice, I'll discover, I'll see, I'll see very easily that my suffering or reward commences in the very instant of wrongdoing or doing good. If I reduce the harm I cause others, I will reduce the harm to myself. The effect of how I live my life will be my legacy to those who come after. If I've been self-seeking and greedy, I will perpetuate that behavior. If I've been selfless and generous, I will bequeath that to unknown heirs in some future time. This is just common sense, common cause and effect sense. So the, the inherent ethical wisdom of the Buddhist law of karma lies in its teaching on the consequences of actions. As a moral law, karma has to do with volitional actions, that is, actions intentionally chosen and acted upon. This moral aspect points to the rather obvious observation that an individual is held accountable for what he chooses to do. An additional aspect of the traditional ethics of the law of karma states that actions perpetuate their own kind. Literally, greed leads to more greed, hate to more hate, kindness to kindness, love to love, and so forth. I can't argue with the likelihood of an action initiating its own kind, but it's important to never forget that the moral implication of action resides in the exercise of choice and that one can choose not to perpetuate a particular action. If you treat me unkindly, I can choose not to respond in kind and therefore turn the karmic wheel toward a more harmonious result. If I couldn't do so, then the whole rationale upon which the moral aspect of karma rests would no longer apply. If I'm to be held responsible for the consequences of my actions, I must be free to choose between alternatives. So on the whole, the great significance of the teachings of karma is to remind me that if I'm in a lousy mood and I crank at the checkout clerk at Safeway, She's more likely to crank at someone else than she would had I treated her with consideration and respect. Karma, as a simple law of consequence, alerts me to the effect of my actions upon others. It also urges attention to the effect of my actions upon myself. If I indulge minor irritations, I perpetuate my own irritability and feel much worse than need be. But when my worry over the likelihood of my own actions rebounding on myself is brought to bear more or less exclusively on the effort to accumulate merit toward a favorable rebirth, then the whole process itself becomes a selfish activity. And if it's true that actions perpetuate their own kind, then the consequence of my quest for personal reward will result in little more than the perpetuation of self-interest. So karma Karma knows, karma knows not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. Even acts that appear to be very generous and very kind on the surface, if they're done in self-interest, 
to gain something, to build reputation, to manipulate, to impress others, then all I'm doing is perpetuating my need, my, my greed and my need, my neediness to, to gain, to have better reputation, to have others think highly of me or whatever the motivation was. So karma is a, uh, it's very, very wise. It sees underneath and it it manifests based on our intentions, not our visible intentions, but our source, our propelling intentions. So if there is such a thing, and I believe there is by the Buddhist teachings there is, and I personally believe there is such a thing as a law of karma, its execution rests not on relative merit and potential reward, but really rather on the willingness to notice here and now my effects on others. It's a matter of simple kindness and consideration. The teachings on karma explain that our past actions affect us either positively or negatively, and that our present actions will affect us in the future. Buddhism uses an agricultural metaphor to explain how sowing good or bad deeds will result in good or bad fruit and the karmic inclinations that are planted in our mind are referred to frequently as karmic seeds that when the conditions are right just like seeds that sit out in the soil when the conditions are right when the moisture is right, the temperature is right, the sunlight is right, the pH of the soil, the content of the soil is ripe, those seeds will blossom and there's nothing that can hold them back, such as the same with the karmic seeds that we plant in our mind, just waiting to blossom based upon what we are experiencing, what's entering our mind through our sensory, our sensory doorways. Acting on karmic habits increases their strength. So as a Buddhist practitioner, we gradually weaken negative thoughts and impulses that we experience through allowing them to arise. We have no choice, they will arise, but then departing naturally without our acting upon them. In this way, karmic habits can be broken and it is the path, the Buddhist path, to understand this process of karma the arising of karmic seeds, the planting of karmic seeds, and then the awareness and the mindfulness to, to watch, see, to know what is occurring in the mind, and then react in the most wholesome ways we can to what is occurring. John Kabat-Zinn, a well-known author, kind of a new-agey psychological author, writes about karma. He says, Karma is often wrongly confused with the notion of a fixed destiny. It's more like an accumulation of tendencies that can lock us into particular behavior patterns which themselves result in further accumulations of tendencies of a similar nature. But moving forward, it's not necessary to be a prisoner of old karma. Here's how mindfulness changes karma, says John Kabat-Zinn. When you sit in meditation, you are not allowing your impulses to translate into action. For the time being, at least, you're just watching them. Looking at them, you quickly see that all impulses in the mind arise and pass away, that they have a life of their own, that they are not you, but just thinking, and that you do not have to be ruled by them. 
not feeding or reacting to impulses, you come to understand their nature as thoughts directly. The process actually burns up destructive impulses in the fires of concentration, equanimity, and non-doing. At the same time, creative insights and creative impulses are no longer squeezed out so much by the more turbulent, destructive ones. They are nourished as they are perceived and held in awareness. So one of the aspects of karma upon learning what karma is, cause and effect in the mind and how karma works, is the notion and the the, the Buddhist ideas and practices of how to work with karma, of how to understand how karma works and why karma works. And then with that knowledge, the understanding of its workings, to be able to, to, to work with it, to modify. Just like the Dalai Lama said at the beginning of this program, karma isn't something that we can pray about. Karma is action and it requires work, it requires work on our part to purify, to work through the issues of the karmic issues that, that confuse us, to work through the karmic issues that produce lusts and hatred and, and jealousies and greed, but to work, to recognize and work to dispel them. Because what occurs when the karma is dispelled is the incredible, the vastness, the brilliance, the omniscience, the compassion and the love that exists in the mind, that exists, it's sitting there, but is unable to arise, it's unable to blossom because of all the karmic noise that's going on, keeping it at bay, keeping it silent. Karma, wonderful, wonderful to begin to think about and see at work and then take steps to to guide and modify. So once again, this is Mark Winwood, The Elegant Mind, 104.9 Valley Radio, serving Duval and Carnation and the Redmond Ridge and all areas in between in the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. This program is underwritten by the Chenrizik Project of Duval. I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the Chenrizik Project. It is a, it's an organization, a group, a project that I founded in Florida, Central Florida, almost 15 years ago. We've been here in Washington State now for just about four years and in Duval since November of 2017. We do a uh, variety of, of things in terms of sharing Buddhist Dharma. We have every other Thursday night meetings in downtown Duval from 6 to 8 p.m. at Longevity Foods on Highway 203, right across from the subway. We publish a weekly e-magazine, which is currently going out to more than 500 people, not just in Washington state, but around the world. Really excited about that. We publish regular, actually irregular, uh, what we call Dharma breadcrumbs, little writings, little essays, little points of view, frequently based on current events, things that are going on in the news, the local news, the national news. Uh, we volunteer on a regular basis at the Monroe Correctional Complex, working with the uh, inmates, some of the inmates there, 
on Buddhist ideas and meditations. And we conduct online teachings every Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific. That's online. All one needs to participate to join us is a uh, computer, good internet connection, or a smartphone. We use the GoToMeeting platform, and there, uh, there's no charge for, for any of this, our newsletter, our teachings, our writings, to, to come to our, our gatherings. At our gatherings, we combine meditation and teaching and discussion. We have a really nice group of people who are coming to the, to the every other Thursday meetings in Duval, Everyone's getting to know one another, and which is really, uh, it's really wonderful to bring the Buddhist teachings to a group of people who feel comfortable with each other, comfortable in discussing their perspectives and their ideas and some of the things that are going on in their lives and, and questioning or, or explaining how the Buddhist teachings relate practically to the things that they are experiencing on a regular basis. So we have a lot going on. We're planning to do a residential local retreat probably in November, November or December of this year on a Friday night, all day Saturday and half of Sunday. Retreat will involve meditation and, and teachings and that's in the in the planning stages. We're real excited to be doing that. So you can check us out on the internet, www.chenrizigproject.org. That's C-H-E-N-R-E-Z-I-G-P-R-O-J-E-C-T, chenrizikproject.org. We've got a uh, full-fledged website there with writings and notices and links to different things, and our calendar of events is, is there. So you can also sign up for our weekly e-magazine there as well. So please feel free to poke around, see if anything arouses your interest. For those listening here, if you would like to pose a question, respond to something that you've heard, or perhaps even be interviewed on this program, we are going to be starting interviews in the very near future. If you're doing something in the community that you'd like to bring attention to, that might have Buddhist perspectives or community perspectives or perspectives of generosity or joy or happiness or loving kindness, because all of that relates, all of that fits in, please send an email to me, email sent to theelegantmind at valley1049.org. That's theelegantmind at valley 1049 org. I will uh, get that email and I will respond as quickly as I can and uh, in kind to whatever you're looking to, to share. So again, Mark Winwood, The Elegant Mind. And we're going to listen to some music now. We're going to listen to some Bobby Vega music. And when we come back, we're still on karma. We're still on the notions of karma going to share some fundamental ideas, some perspectives on how to look at karma from uh, different angles. And then we're going to share in a teaching that comes from uh, Matthew Ricard, who's a very well-known Tibetan Buddhist monk, teacher, photographer, philosopher, translator. He did a little question and answer on karma kind of the misconceptions, some of the misconceptions, some of the clarifications on what karma is and karma isn't. 
So we're going to visit with Matthew. I'm going to read the transcript of some of the aspects of that interview. So enjoy the music, and then we'll return after the music has completed. The name of this cut is Helicopters and Small Planes, and it's written and performed by Bobby Vega. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind, and we're talking about karma. One of the things that we do as practitioners is we, as you probably know, we meditate. Meditation is a part, an aspect of our practice. 
And karma is something that we do meditate. Meditate means to really think, great focus and awareness and concentration, to, to think experientially. So we, we meditate, we think experientially on the notions of karma. So I'd like to share that. I'd like to share some of the, some of the, the points, some of the thinking points, the meditation points when we sit down and really try to analyze, try to really get inside the workings of, of karma. So we begin by understanding, by bringing to mind that every moment in our life we're experiencing the result of actions that our mind, wherever it was, did in the past. And through how we respond to all these events in our life, how we act, that we're creating the cause or the causes for what we will experience in the future. So the more we understand how karma works, the more we can be responsible and take advantage of this knowledge to create the causes for happiness and avoid the causes of discomfort and suffering. So there are four general aspects of karma and how it functions. The first is that karma is definite. In other words, happiness always comes from constructive actions and pain from destructive ones. In fact, the whole way that positive and negative actions are defined is in terms of the intentions behind them. So the Buddha, Siddhartha, with clairvoyance, looked. And when sentient beings were suffering, he found the causes of those sufferings, and those were labeled negative actions. And when he saw sentient beings' happiness, he looked at the causes for those, and those were caused by positive or constructive actions. So whenever we experience happiness, it's due to acting constructively. Whenever we experience pain, it's due to our own negative actions. And similarly, whenever we act constructively, for sure the effect is going to be happiness, never pain. And when we act destructively, for sure the result is going to be unpleasant and not happy. So perhaps thinking about this, makes us want to practice positive actions and not engage in negative ones. The second quality of karma is that it's expandable, which means that a small cause can lead to a big result. So telling a little white lie can lead to major unhappiness in the future, and making a small offering or showing even a small act of kindness to somebody can lead to a very great happy result in the future. This is very similar to the way a small seed can produce a big plant or a big tree with lots of fruit on it. And we understand this. When we understand this, then we take care to abandon even small negativities and to try to take the opportunity even small positive actions may afford us. And so this understanding makes us very mindful hopefully makes us very mindful and attentive in our life and encourages us to really integrate our spiritual practice with our daily life so that we can take advantage beneficially and wholesomely. We can take advantage of every opportunity that presents itself. The third quality of karma is that if the cause hasn't been created, then the effect will not be experienced. In other words, if we don't act destructively, we won't experience hardships and obstacles. And similarly, if we don't create the causes for realizations and positive actions, 
then we won't be able to gain them either. So often you see two people in a similar situation. One is happy and the other is miserable. Or for one, the circumstance goes well, and for the other, there are many obstacles. And this all comes about because one has created the cause for happiness and the other hasn't. So when we see this, we realize that if we want happiness, we have to act. We have to create the causes for happiness to manifest. And we also have to abandon the intentions and actions to create the causes that lead to obstacles and difficulties. It's really pretty clear if you stop to take a look at it. The next point of karma is that karmic imprints, karmic seeds, karmic inclinations don't get lost. In other words, we will definitely experience the result. So for sure, if we act negatively, it's going to bring pain. For sure, if we act constructively, it's going to bring happiness. But there are some ways that interferences can occur. So similarly, our positive actions will definitely bring positive results unless they're inhibited from ripening by our anger and the intentional actions our anger causes. So anger and hatred and violence can and do obstruct positive karmic seeds in our mind stream from ripening and bringing happiness. So the more we understand these points, the more responsibility, sense of responsibility begins to arise in our mind. The more we want to protect the positive imprints, the positive karmic imprints, the positive karmic inclinations sitting in our mind, the merit sitting in our mind, the more we want to protect these by dedicating them to the benefit of all beings. And the more we want to engage in purification practices to stop the negative imprints from bringing harmful results. So think about this. Think about this. And perhaps you might find yourself wanting to determine to be more and more mindful of your intentions and the actions that result from your intentions in your daily life, you know, especially from the moment that we wake up in the morning, to remain mindful that I am enjoying a rare, precious human life, as we discussed last week, this amazing freedom that enables me to give wonderful meaning to this life. Karma, you know, the workings of cause and effect, the natural laws of cause and effect are fantastic. They're fantastic to understand. They're fantastic to pay attention to. And they're really fantastic when we begin to develop and cultivate a sense of responsibility, a sense of, uh, of maturity to pay attention to what we're doing to our mind, to the types of inclinations, the architecting that we're doing in our mind so that whatever comes our way, whatever enters our mind, enters the processor of our mind through our sensory doorways, whatever we see or hear or taste or smell or touch or even think about, so that whatever enters our mind produces a, a wholesome, positive karmic reaction, a moment of open-mindedness and fertility, a moment of connection, a moment of responsibility, a moment of patience and generosity and balance and serenity 
and clarity and wisdom and compassion. All of these things, all of these these aspects of mind are just sitting there, just waiting to blossom, just waiting for the karmic seed that turns them on to emerge, to arise. Wonderful, wonderful sense of how things work and and how our life goes from moment to moment to moment and what we experience, what we experience, what we feel, what we think, how we react, what we intend. Wonderful teachings on the workings of karma. So think about them and uh, take them to mind. So with that, and as promised, I'm going to introduce you to Matthew Ricard. Matthew was born in France in 1946. He was trained as a molecular biologist at the prestigious Institut Pasteur before trading in his lab coat for the robes of a Tibetan Buddhist monk in 1972. In 1975, Matthew became the close student and attendant of Digo Kyensi Rinpoche, the revered master Digo Kyensi Rinpoche, and traveled with him as, uh, as his attendant through Bhutan, India, Nepal, and Tibet until uh, Rinpoche passed in 1991. Matthew has served as the Dalai Lama's translator from Tibetan into French whenever His Holiness was traveling in uh, French-speaking areas. Matthew has written several books and is a uh, esteemed photographer. He's, uh, he's quite the Renaissance man, and he's a Tibetan Buddhist monk as well. So he uh, was interviewed in New York City in September of 2006, 12 years ago, and he was interviewed about karma. And I have a transcript of the interview. So I'd like to read questions and then some of his answers to those questions. I think you might find them interesting. So we begin with the question, a lot of people think of karma in terms of, why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this to me? This implies a notion of fate or cosmic justice. Is this the Buddhist perspective of karma? And Matthew answers, this is a view that is inspired by the Judeo-Christian tradition. In Buddhism, there is no notion of an external entity judging our actions and bestowing punishment or reward. Matthew continues, at every point in our lives, in fact, at every moment, we are at a crossroads. We are the fruit of our past and architects of our future. When we ask, why did this happen to me? It is because of our limited view, a notion that we are somehow independent of our own actions. We can ask, why did this happen? But the more important question is, what are we going to do about it? If you want to know your past, look at your present circumstances. If you want to know your future, look at what is in your mind. If we know that our fate is in our hands, then the quality of our actions becomes a central issue. The whole point of karma is to recognize how our actions determine our future so that we can begin to act properly. It's not just a cosmological or philosophical matter. It's entirely practical. At its lowest motivation, the main point is not to get in trouble again. So then 
the uh, question is, so what is karma? And Matthew responds, karma is a particular aspect of the law of cause and effect that relates to our experience of happiness and suffering, and that basically depends on our motivation. We cannot perfectly foresee the outcomes of our actions, but we are always in charge of our motivation. It's up to us to determine if we want to cause some harm or bring some benefit. Unless we are mad and unable to think about it, nobody can say we are not in charge of our motivation. An act that is motivated by an altruistic frame of mind is ethical, no matter how it looks. And an act that is motivated by a wish to harm is unethical, no matter how it looks. From the Buddhist point of view, we define right or wrong in terms of what leads to happiness or suffering. It is not some idealized dogma of good and bad somewhere sitting out in space. We might be deluded about our understanding of the world and about the nature of happiness or suffering, but anyone, deluded or not, has the capacity to check if he is acting under the inspiration of altruism or malevolence. And then the interviewer asks, what if your intention is good but the results are harmful? And Matthew says, that's where ignorance and confusion interfere with our altruistic intentions. That is why we need wisdom. Buddha said, those who have completely realized emptiness are those who are the best. In other words, they see what needs to be done and what needs to be avoided. They are able to choose the correct means because they can foresee what can happen. That's why we say that the essence of Buddha's teaching is the union of compassion and wisdom, the view of interdependence and interconnection. An altruistic attitude is altruistic. It is not confused in itself. But without wisdom, we can act with obscured compassion or stupid compassion. So, to gauge my motivation, I can always ask myself, how much are my actions motivated by my own self-centered purposes? Am I really acting out of generosity and love? That's why mindfulness and checking our motivations and actions throughout the day is important. It is something that, at least in the beginning, is clearly defined and is certainly within our scope to begin to practice. And then, by cultivating love and kindness and compassion more frequently, and then at most times, and then at all times, we can ensure that our motivation becomes more and more altruistic. And, as I said before, without introspection, we risk developing some kind of stupid compassion because we lack discrimination. So again, we find that compassion and wisdom go together. In terms of karma, it is important for us to understand that our human existence is itself the result of highly positive past actions. This didn't come out of nowhere. We have accumulated aspirations that cause us to be born as human beings so that we can use our suffering to motivate our desire for freedom. That's why we say that human life is like one meal out of hundreds of days of starvation. Some understanding of karma is a crucial element in making us appreciate the unique opportunity of our precious human life rather than taking it for granted. That can help motivate us toward positive actions. 
and these positive actions will change our experience of our consciousness. We are the architects of our future. We are responsible for the kind of rebirth we are going to have and the kind of physical circumstances we are going to encounter. So in some ways, we can say we shouldn't underestimate the power of mind because the mind we have now, whether altruistic or self-centered, will shape the way we perceive the world and our experiences of happiness or suffering in the future. So that's Matthew Ricard speaking about mind and karma and happiness and suffering. And, you know, the title of this program is The Elegant Mind. The elegant mind is the mind that is experiencing the ripening and the creation of wholesome karmic seeds, of wholesome karmic inclinations, of wholesome reactions, of wholesome propelling notions and motivations and intentions. The wholesome mind, the karmically healthy mind, is the mind that is the elegant mind. And the final question of the interview is, so mindfulness that leads to the type of motivations and actions that develop positive karma is the result of us changing our perceptions? And Matthew says, yes. It's a question of purifying our perceptions. If you are consumed with hatred, you see everything in terms of hatred. You could be surrounded by kind and beautiful people in a beautiful and healthy place. But if your mind is filled with hatred, you cannot appreciate it, and the world will be a dead and hateful place for you. Hence the importance of mind training. Our traits, Matthew continues, our traits, the way we relate to the world and our own minds, are the result of the accumulation of countless thoughts and emotions. By transforming the content of those thoughts and emotions, nurturing wholesome states of mind, such as altruistic love and compassion, and using antidotes against afflictive states of mind, such as animosity, obsession, and envy, we can gradually change our way of being in the same way we usually acquire new skills. The fruition of karma depends on causes and conditions. Those are impermanent themselves and they are interrelated. So you can always act on anything up to the moment it happens. Of course, if you've already experienced the fruit of your karma, it's too late. But until the maturation, you can always intervene. So, Matthew concludes, at the end of the day, it all comes down, karma, it all comes down to motivations and actions. Altruistic motivation builds up our positive tendencies and perceptions. It also purifies our karma. As we purify our vision, we come to see more precisely into the nature of interdependence that is pure vision. It is with that that we will change the way we experience the world. So again, the teachings on karma explain that our past actions affect us, either positively or negatively, and that our present actions will affect us in the future. So I'd like to conclude this karma discussion. And again, if you have any questions or insights 
or you want to know more. This is a very profound, karma is a very, very profound topic. And um, it's actually a bit of a challenge to try to summarize and communicate these ideas to you in the time frame of the Elegant Mind radio program. But I would like to share with you the Buddha, what Siddhartha, who understood karma and taught about the workings of karma, about what he said about karma. This is a, a fragment of one of the Buddhas, one of Siddhartha's teachings called the Sutra of the Causes and Effects of Actions. And this is a, uh, a, translated, a translated quote from that sutra. The person who in this world is handsome comes from a patient mind, and the ugly comes from amid anger. The needy come from meanness. The height and noble comes from prayer and service, and the lowly and base comes from pride. The great and tall person comes from honor and respect, and the short-legged person comes on account of contempt. The person who hinders the bright splendor of the Buddha is born soiled and thin, and the one who tastes the food of the fast is born deprived of food. The person who is too sparing of fire and light is born infirm. The one in whose eyes fault always appears is born night blind. The person who slanders the law is born dumb. And the person who does not want to hear the law is born deaf. The person who is compassionate is born long-lived. And the one who kills living beings is born short-lived. The one who gives gifts is born rich. The one who gives a gift of horse and carriage to the three jewels has many horses and carriages. The person who asks about the teachings is born intelligent, but the stupid person is born into animal existence. The person who cannot stay in his place is born among the apes. The one who binds the feet and hands of living beings is born paralyzed in hand and foot. The person who is of evil passions is born into snakes and scorpions. The unclean person goes to an existence of pigs. The one who is greedy is born a dog. The one who seduces the spouse of another after dying falls among the geese. And a person who commits incest will fall into the existence of sparrows. So that's Siddhartha. And, you know, Siddhartha taught in metaphor. Siddhartha, Siddhartha was a really interesting, interesting teacher. Siddhartha, you know, he was, he was like the doctor, you know, he, and he would be treating all different patients at all different times uh, of their ills, of their maladies, of their, their maladies of mind. And, you know, if you, if you have a doctor, one doctor who prescribes everything, the same drug, the same the same procedure to everyone, whoever comes in front of him, whatever their problems are, they always get prescribed the same thing. You'd look at that doctor and you'd say, well, he's a bit of a quack. Well, Siddhartha was a remarkable teacher. 
And depending upon who it was that he was speaking to, the situation, what he perceived their needs were, he would teach them, usually metaphorically, in ways that they could understand and, you know, that would resonate with them, that, that, that they could understand and think about and process and perhaps put to use. So we have this, this, uh, this one particular sutra, the Sutra of the Causes and Effects of Actions, in which Siddhartha is talking to Ananda. And this is how he explains the workings of karma very straightforward manner, the workings of karma, that if this, then that, in ways that Ananda is able to understand very clearly the effects of, of what we do and what those effects or how those effects will manifest in the future. So very metaphorical. And, you know, I suggest that, you know, think about it. Because at the end of the game, Karma, the workings of karma, the natural laws of cause and effect, the way karma manifests and works within the mind is not limited to those who believe in karma or know karma to be true. Every sentient mind at every moment is under the effect, the propelling effect of past karmic seeds that have come to blossom and is creating those seeds that will blossom in the future. Every mind. So thank you for listening to this karma discussion. We've been all over the place from the Dalai Lama to Matthew Ricard to Siddhartha. And I do want to say that next week, next week's program of The Elegant Mind is, uh, is kind of special. We're going to be talking about His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We're going to be celebrating the Dalai Lama, his 83rd birthday is coming up on July 6th, on Friday, the 6th of July. And uh, we're going to be talking and, and uh, honoring and laughing about and admiring the Dalai Lama in our meeting uh, here in Duval on Thursday night. It's going to be Dalai Lama night. And the Elegant Mind is also going to be dedicated to to the life and times of the beauty, the wisdom, the love, and appreciation of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, turning 83 years old on Friday, the 6th of July. Among other things, perhaps one of the greatest examples of living positive, wholesome karmic seeds. So thank you once again for tuning in. This is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9 FM in the Snoqualmie Valley, lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you again. Bye-bye.